Matthew 5, verse 38. Now, just before we read, pop quiz. How did you just open your Bibles? Put your hand up if you used a digital device. Just doing a bit of a... All right, a few digital devices. Excellent. Put your hand up if you used a Bible in the pews. Wow. Okay, that's, that's a strong... That's, that's an issue because that's an old version of the new NIV. We probably have to update those. Um, <laughs> it'll be different to what's on screen here. Um, put your hand up if you bought your own Bible. Like paper and, you know, see we've got some, you know, some disciplined ones there. Good. And um, put your hand up if you go, and no, I just want to look at the pictures on screen. <laughs> cool. That just helps a bit of research there. Uh, so it's uh, <laughs> good to know. All right, well, for those who want the pictures on screen, here we go, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right. The saying that Jesus is quoting here, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth idea, does show up a couple of times in the Mosaic law. Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, it does say that. These are part of civil instructions, instructions for God's people to behave civilly towards each other. Here's a snippet from the first one, Exodus 21. Here's an example. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. Okay, so that's a bit of a legal precedent there. If there's a serious injury, you ought to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull's to be stoned to death. Its meat must not be eaten. If the owner of the bull, the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. But if the bull has a habit of goring, and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned, and it kills someone, the bull is to be stoned and its owner also is to be put to death. However, if payment is demanded, the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded. When we take that isolated statement and actually read it in context, we see there's actually some really good intent here and puts God's people on notice. If you fought and someone got injured, particularly a pregnant woman in this passage, but beforehand other people as well, you would be liable for all injury there. You have to control yourself. Don't fight. Yeah, and if someone's fragile around you, or if someone's at risk around you, behave yourself. If you were irresponsible with a vicious one-ton animal, that's going to cost you dearly. could cost you your life. If you abuse slaves, you'd be held accountable for your actions. That's a, that's a mega one right there. You can't abuse someone. If you knock a guy's tooth out, you set him free. That's someone going, you can't get angry and, t- and take a swing at them. You can't treat them like trash. You've got to treat people with respect here. The spirit and intent of these instructions was not how to appropriately retaliate and punish someone. 
but rather it was instructions about how God's people should take responsibility for their actions. When it's repeated in Deuteronomy 19, it's done to prevent false accusations. If you were accused of doing harm, if someone had a smear campaign, this would never fly in politics today. Someone wanted to run a smear campaign on you and go, such and such did this and this and this and falsely accused you of stuff. You go to court, the judges would go, hang on, that's not true. You, the accuser who deliberately brought that falsehood, you are now going to get the punishment that you were accused the other person of doing. That's, that's the sort of idea. And it says, take no pity, don't let this stuff happen in your nation. But in the kingdom way, in the realm of the ungrieved Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us that a different expectation is to be taken note of here. In the way to come, power and permission to take revenge and retaliate, to, 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 take, uh, to, to take that sort of strong action against people who wrong us is taken out of our hands. This doesn't allow us to be willing victims. Someone breaks into your house and you've got your kids in the house, Get the baseball bat out. All right? I, like, actually defend your home. It's actually, you can defend yourself if someone is, wants to harm you. All right? If someone wants to come at you like that, you, you, self-defense is not a problem here. If someone hijacks your car, you've got your babies in the back seat, you're allowed to defend yourself like that. You know, if you're a police officer, you know, if you've got a heated situation, the gun may need to come out of the holster. This is not, I don't believe, that what we're talking about here, these are civil life things. They're basic human rights of being safe and sound. I don't believe Jesus is addressing that per se here. I believe Jesus is speaking into the human heart and our attitude and our appetite for revenge and justice that is the sort of justice that is right in our eyes alone. The vigilante type stuff, the strong attitudes, the the heated things that people say on Facebook whenever they read of a dark thing on the news. People calling for people to be strung up. People calling for life for life. Man, that person doesn't doesn't belong in this planet. Put them to death. You know, those people that campaign for the death penalty again to, to bring that back in, that sort of stuff. The rabbis and the Pharisees had found ways of sounding holy and doing, you know, in doing those things. They would take what Jesus quoted here, they were using as permission to do that thing rather than a prescription to prevent being in the wrong. Jesus has already covered the idea of being blessed if we're persecuted as well. So we should expect that there is an element of persecution that will be part and parcel of being a believer. And and I believe the retaliation Jesus is speaking of here also speaks into that context as well. Someone wants to persecute, we're not to go and hit them back. We're supposed to be a bit different to that. As I read that through and as I prayed through all that stuff, as I considered all that, I'm going, God, what do you want us to see, particularly out of the Old Testament? And this is what I've got. That sense of retaliation ignores a major facet of God's personality and work in our life. And I believe those in the kingdom should work in greater awareness of what God's work actually is in this regard. In Deuteronomy 32, among many other Old Testament passages, we read of God vindicating his people. David used that word a lot in in the Psalms. When people were falsely accusing him, when people were chasing him down for no apparent reason, when people were doing wrong to him, 
he says, God vindicates. Where those walking in integrity could hold their head up high before God because they knew he had their back, he held their best interest at heart, even and especially if the world did not. That was the Old Testament in the era of grace after what Jesus did, what we remembered last weekend. The idea of Old Testament vindication actually becomes justification in the new. Jesus calls us not guilty. Jesus gives us a few clues on how to, he sort of fleshes this out, gives some practical elements to this, to his immediate audience. And he starts in verse 39 with a cultural bombshell. To turn the other cheek. Even today in Middle Eastern society, the slap across his face is the highest of insults. It shows contempt for another person. In the dark ages, when, when priests were putting people to death at the stake for, for heresy, before they would actually light the torch, they would slap him in the face publicly. It's interesting that the Old Testament spoke prophetically of Christ in Isaiah 50 verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Jesus, who being God, had every reason to retaliate and execute justice. And yet he offered his own face, his back, his hands and his feet to be repeatedly harmed and mangled. And his response at all the end of all that was what? Father, forgive them because they've got no clue what they're doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this an active participation in his own cross. And I think that gives a bit of depth to the challenge to take up ours as well. He gives a judicial example. If someone wants to sue you for the shirt off your back, give them the matching jacket as well. He gives an example for the street. Something I walked past and struggled with only a couple of weeks ago myself. Had a hard time actually reconciling this. Not easy to put it to get two and two together sometimes. Don't withhold from those who ask for help. And in between those, Jesus speaks into a very real and confronting situation for his immediate audience. He knew, and we've already established, that there was a cry for retaliation going on amongst the Jews. There was a people crying out for revenge and calling for it to put an end to the oppression of the Roman system. The zealots... If they were asked to do this, Jesus probably eyeballed a few of them. The only person who could legally force you to walk a mile, like Jesus says here, was a Roman soldier. He could dump his whole kit on you and go, I can't be bothered walking with all that on my shoulders, so you can carry it for a mile for me. And you had to comply. The zealots would have taken out a knife and gone, no, thank you. 
But Jesus says, take the kid on. And he goes, walk two miles. Jesus turns all that on its head. If you get the call, don't fight him. Do double. These are people who did profane, awful things in their midst. These are people who have become the abomination desolation, pulling down Solomon's temple. Not Solomon's, the Herod's temple. People who would do terrible things, who had already done terrible things. This is the attitude of the kingdom here. Our, kingdom, our king teaches us this. Do not retaliate. Follow my example. Charles Spurgeon said that in such instances, if evil people are the hammer, we are to be the anvil. This is not being soft or weak for acting in such a way. Instead, we are putting the character trait of meekness into action. We take the power that we have to retaliate and we place it under restraint. And instead we put it into Christ-like action. I can hurt you for wronging me or I can bravely love you and forgive you and walk an extra mile with you because you don't know better. A couple of stories have rung home, brought this home to me in the last few weeks. One African-American leader, sorry, African leader, South Africa during the apartheid was asked about how he felt about being oppressed by the white people over him. And he responds this way, he goes, when I've been unjustly forced into some menial action, I complete it. And then I turn and I ask my boss if there's anything else he would like me to do to help him. This totally takes the wind out of his sails. He can hardly believe that any wronged party would respond like that. More recently, in the last 10 or so days, Egypt has shown us some real life lessons of this. There was a talk show this week, one of the more prominent talk shows hosted by a guy named Amir Adib. One of his team is interviewing the wife of a man who died in one of the blasts. Turns out this man was on security. They actually had security checks and and like metal detectors going into the, the Coptic churches in that area, just knowing it was a volatile thing. And as the man walked into the detector, he detonated. So this man was believed to be probably the first guy to die in the blast. And the wife is sitting with her children beside her. And on national TV, she says, I am not angry at the man who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. The talk show host on TV was silent for about 12 seconds. Radio silence, that's that's crazy. And he finally made these statements. How great is this forgiveness you have? If it were my father, I could never say this. But this is their faith and religious conviction. 
the cops, C-O-P-T-S, of Egypt are made of steel. What is there about our faith that resonates with that? That reflects that? What loving and non-retaliating things about us have or could taken the wind out of evil people's sails? The message of the cross does that to the world. When presented by us to the world around us, it can take the wind out of people's sails like nothing else. It can, it, it can, be, it can leave people lost for words. It can su- surprise them no end. And I believe as kingdom people, our association with the cross and our conduct because of the cross because of what Jesus teaches us, needs to do the same thing. Jesus goes on one further again. Verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How loaded is that last statement? Before we get to the last, look at that first line. Does anything ring false about that? You have heard it said, love your neighbour. Okay, love your neighbour. That's law through and through, isn't it? You were to love your neighbour as yourself. But hate your enemy? That got added later and not by the Lord. The belief amongst modern scholars is that the rabbis had added that last bit over the years. Believing that 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 was implied, even though it was never stated. Love your neighbour, therefore hate your enemies. They had some instant precedents to work with. David in Psalm 139 spoke of hating those that hated God. But God is directly quoted in Leviticus 19. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. And do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. When it comes to the Sermon on the Mount... This is the top end of it. We've been looking at a number of examples where a kingdom citizen expresses a righteous way that is better than Pharisee ways. And this is the greatest expression of that. Christ-like love is essentially the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God. There's some very clear lessons on kingdom love in this last short passage. First one is to operate in the scope of love that we're called to operate in here. 
Now, if you're a sermon veteran, you probably would know the Greek word for love that is being used here. Do we? Okay, our face coming out. Excellent. For those not sure, there's a number of ways in the Greek language that the word love was used. We write the word love and or speak the word love and the context determines what it means, right? And that doesn't always mean exactly the same level. For me to say, I love my wife, but I also love my car, they're two very different ideas of love. And in our conversations, we kind of do know how to differentiate that, hopefully. And hopefully I mean that. <laughs> hopefully you, 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 you um, have correctly worked out what I mean by that. For us, it's a bit of a throwaway line and we can be very open-ended with that particular word. It can mean, I'll die for this person or it can mean, yeah, the food was good. I love hamburgers, you know. In the ancient time, one word for love spoke of a close friendship. Another word spoke of intimate love. Another one spoke of the family bond. You know, that blood is thicker than water idea. And the heaviest used one in the, in the New Testament is the word agape. This was a mind-blowing concept when a Christian can get their head around the idea of agape. It springs from the nature of the donor. It's not dependent on the recipient feeling the same way. It's a commitment to a person in seeking their greatest good despite how we might feel about them. It rises above how we feel and actually is an action that we take because we know it's right. It's undiscriminating. It's without condition. And it's the love that is spoken of that God has for us. It's a sort of love that can propel us and empower us and help us interact with the way Jesus is speaking of love here. Agape love will pray for those that persecute us instead of demonising them on Facebook. Or Agape love will love our enemies, seeing past their actions and seeing how precious they are to God. Agape love will say, I forgive you even though you've bombed my church and bombed my husband. Agape love is extended to people even though they've done nothing to earn it. The second lesson of kingdom love is to redefine the concept of neighbour. The story of the Good Samaritan certainly did that for the local Jews when he was teaching them. The Pharisees have made a very narrow definition of just their own countrymen. In Jesus' time, even the people that were remotely related to them, the Samaritans, could not fit the definition of neighbour. This narrow view devolved into an allowance for and even a permission for hatred and disdain. There was a discrimination here that Jesus would not tolerate. And in his eyes, the Pharisees were no better than the pagan societies around them. The people they held in great contempt 
Jesus said, your expression of love and your expression of the kingdom and your expression of God's attitude towards his people is no better than the people that you despise and the nations around you. Those outside the walls of your godly bubble aren't seeing anything extraordinary in you. That's what God was saying to the Pharisees. And Jesus says here, don't just do what the world half expects already. Demonstrate the kingdom of God by going well beyond and hold on to what Jesus has been saying here. Your neighbour is anyone you can reach and influence. Because if we love them like that, we will influence some of them for the gospel. Some of those will eventually become not just neighbours, but brothers. In my youth ministry in Perth, we had a, a knife incident. Something that I didn't intend on actually, obviously didn't want that to happen, but we had you know, something, someone, one of the leaders let their guard down and this kid pulled out a knife and attacked a kid in my youth group. There is no more hollow feeling than that, church. When you, uh, you sign up for those ministry roles and you know, the safety and all that stuff, that just, that, that absolutely ruined me that night. The kid wasn't badly harmed. He was an elder's son. I had to face one of the elders that night. The parents eyeballed me. I was getting ready for it to come. I was getting ready for the both between, the, between both eyes. The dad said this, the elder. He goes, Cam, if you quit, the devil wins. We'll work through this. The police came. We're taking statements. The kid ended up going to juvenile detention. Not the victim, but the kid with a knife. And even as they're taking police statements, the mum is going, what's going to be done to help that child? Blew me absolutely away. That kid ended up in juvenile detention and he was hooked up with a church youth worker down the road in that region of town and he actually came to Jesus. And this young victim was faced with the concept there, can this person who was once an enemy who sought my harm, can I call this guy a brother now? Fortunately, he was able to come to a yes on that. It's a tough call. The third lesson of kingdom love is that it shows our family likeness with God. Verse 45 says, When we act this way, we are acting as true children of our Father in heaven. Verse 48 pushes the idea even further. If we can look and think beyond the Pharisaic and pagan expressions of love, and live from the kingdom perspective of agape, Jesus says we will be in a position that the NIV translates as perfect. Now I'd love to teach you this is the key to becoming a completely flawless human being. Oh, I've got this love down, so I'm, I'm, I'm without flaw. There is no spot or blemish on me at all. 
I wish it was a key to that. This is absolute perfection. If you get this you beat high, high moral plane, you've achieved it all, just sit back and wait for Jesus to come and get you. Unfortunately, I've got to burst that bubble. <laughs> perfection is not the sense of being without flaw or failure. Perfection here, teleos in the Greek, is to be mature, complete, and of full age. The same Greek word is used in a number of times in the New Testament. Hebrews 5.14 is an example. Solid food is for those who are mature. Same word. Who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Basically, we are told that this is as good as it gets. This is the pinnacle of Christ-like kingdom living. To be able to love somebody else whether they've earned it or not, whether they are a neighbor or not, and even if they are hostile towards us. To operate with unconditional love towards that person. If we can get to that point, we will be as mature as is possible this side of eternity. Do we ever truly get there? Well, I stand before you today knowing I've got a ways to go. And I don't think any of us have attained that perfective, perfected state. I know it's a journey that we're all pursuing. I do have a bit of an idea about why we have a hard time getting there at times as well, though. Why is it that we can't love our enemies? Why is it we can't love those who don't love us back? Well, it takes bravery to do that, doesn't it? The scriptures give us a four-letter word that hinders our ability to do this. And it hinders so much progress in the kingdom as a result. 1 John 4, here's the example. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Who wants to be that? In this world, we are like Jesus. People go, gee, you're like Jesus. Man, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear is to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. There's two words in there. That word again, perfect, is in there. And the hindrance, fear. Nothing cripples us like fear. Nothing halts or freezes us up like fear. Nothing stops momentum or forward movement more than fear. It's especially true in the church. Nothing calls for punishment and retribution more than fear. And nothing stunts our growth as disciples more than fear. When we live in that place, that fearful place, maturity, completion, Christian perfection will constantly elude us. We'll always be looking over our shoulder in fear of God's punishment instead. Operating out of fear reduces our faith expression to nothing more than a superstitious thing where all our acts of service and devotion are driven out of fear rather than love for what God has done for us. 
Love cannot operate in the restricted space of a fearful person. But a revelation of God's love will change that. It makes us deeply aware of the punishment that we are not bound for because of our faith in Christ. This revelation causes us to become aware that Jesus broke through our hostility and did everything required for us to be reconciled to God. And that sort of revelation causes us to walk differently. Fear is no longer a factor because God's perfect love has driven it out. Without the shackles of fear, we are free to love the way the kingdom calls us to. And without fear, that love looks remarkably similar to the sort of love that Jesus himself demonstrates. I'm going to pause and ponder at this time. I'm going to invite the band up. And before we worship, I want to ask, I've been compelled by the Spirit to ask a few questions. Some self-examination here. What is the Lord wanting to say at this time? First one is a very practical, hands-on approach. How does our expression of love and grace and the behaviour around it stack up with what Jesus is saying here? What things are taking the wind out of people's sails? How does our love and our non-retaliation surprise the world around us? How do people sit up and take notice of what we stand for through this attitude in our life? How does the kingdom get demonstrated through us in the arena of love, mercy, forgiveness, non-retaliation? Second, if our capacity for agape love, unconditional love, is a measure of Christian maturity, then what is the state of our discipleship journey at this time? That old saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we on the right track towards it? Are we pursuing the love that Jesus prescribes us to My final question is this. If our love for others has become diminished, what have we become afraid of? If our love for others has become diminished, if our love for others is not even present, what are we afraid of? What elements of fear has crept in? Nobody can move forward until you can leave all your fear at the foot of the cross. Entire churches can be stunted with fear. Entire families can be crippled with fear. Individuals 
can stop growing because of fear, can stop loving, can stop moving forward in life because of fear. Oh man, I'm not loving people. I've, I'm finding it really hard to love. Has fear, is fear a factor? Fear has to do with punishment, according to 1 John. In other words, fear calls for punishment. Fear lives in a state of expecting punishment. Fear knows it's coming and feels powerless to do anything about it. And yet, in Jesus, we're not supposed to feel that way. Perfect love casts out all fear. If fear has to do with punishment, we understand as believers we're not bound for punishment. Therefore, we're not supposed to live in fear. Would you reflect on just what the Spirit wants to say to the church today? And I know I've thrown a lot of stuff out there today and I believe the Spirit is speaking. I believe He's challenging people that different snippets of what's been said today have, have rung true. And even though we didn't talk about it until after the fact, I believe what song has been selected next is fitting. Boldly I approach. See, eventually we're going to sing that song, but hopefully we can do that with a sense of conviction. Boldly I approach means I know that Jesus loves me unconditionally. Boldly I approach means I have been forgiven of my sin. Boldly I approach means that I am not bound for punishment. Boldly I approach understands that we have a throne of grace that we can come front and centre to. Some of us here are living in fear because you don't think you might. Some people just have a hard time coming to grips with the idea that they're actually forgiven of their sin. Can I assure you that if you know Jesus, you are in that place? Some of us need a revelation of the love of God afresh. Let this be a time where the Spirit does something fresh in you and shows you that. And let it propel you. Let it empower you to live differently, to love differently. And let's go onwards and upwards towards that goal of maturity that Jesus sets before us. The ability to love the way he prescribes us to do. And the way the kingdom calls for and the way the kingdom empowers us to do. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now.